Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Wisdom of Father Brown, recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 11. The Strange Crime of John Boulnois. Mr. Cahoon Kidd was a very young gentleman with a very old face, face dried up with its own eagerness, framed in blue-black hair and a black butterfly tie. He was the emissary in England of the colossal American daily called the Western Sun, also humorously described as the Rising Sunset. This was in allusion to a great journalistic declaration attributed to Mr. Kidd himself, that he guessed the sun would rise in the West yet if American citizens did a bit more hustling. Those, however, who mock American journalism from the standpoint of somewhat mellower traditions forget a certain paradox which partly redeems it. For while the journalism of the States permits a pantomimic vulgarity long past anything English, it also shows a real excitement about the most earnest mental problems, of which English papers are innocent or rather incapable. The sun was full of the most solemn matters treated in the most farcical way. William James figured there as well as Weary Willie, and pragmatists alternated with pugilists in the long procession of its portraits. Thus, when a very unobtrusive Oxford man named John Boulnois wrote in a very unreadable review called the Natural Philosophy Quarterly a series of articles on alleged weak points in Darwinian evolution, it fluttered no corner of the English papers, though Boulnois's theory, which was that of a comparatively stationary universe, visited occasionally by convulsions of change, had some rather faddy fashionableness at Oxford, and got so far as to be named catastrophism. But many American papers seized on the challenge as a great event, and the sun threw the shadow of Mr. Boulnois quite gigantically across its pages. By the paradox already noted, articles of valuable intelligence and enthusiasm were presented with headlines apparently written by an illiterate maniac, Headlines such as Darwin Chews Dirt, Critic Boulnois Says He Jumps the Shocks, or Keep Catastrophic Says Thinker Boulnois. And Mr. Cahoon Kidd of the Western Sun was bidden to take his butterfly tie and lugubrious visage down to the little house outside Oxford where Thinker Boulnois lived in happy ignorance of such a title. That fated philosopher had consented in a somewhat dazed manner to receive the interviewer, and had named the hour of nine that evening. The last of a summer sunset clung about Cumnor and the low wooded hills. The romantic Yankee was both doubtful of his road and inquisitive about his surroundings. And, seeing the door of a genuine feudal old country inn, the Champion Arms, standing open, he went in to make inquiries. In the bar-parlour he rang the bell, and had to wait some little time for a reply to it. The only other person present was a lean man with close red hair and loose, horsey-looking clothes, who was drinking very bad whisky, but smoking a very good cigar. The whisky, of course, was the choice brand of the Champion Arms, the cigar he had probably brought with him from London. 
nothing could be more different than his cynical negligence from the dapper dryness of the young American. But something in his pencil and open notebook, and perhaps in the expression of his alert blue eye, caused Kidd to guess, correctly, that he was a brother journalist. "'Could you do me a favour? asked Kidd, with the courtesy of his nation, of directing me to the grey cottage where Mr. Boulnoir lives, as I understand. "'It's a few yards down the road,' said the red-haired man, removing his cigar. "'I shall be passing it myself in a minute, but I'm going on to Pendragon Park to try and see the fun.' "'What is Pendragon Park?' asked Cahoon Kidd. "'Sir Claude Champion's place. Haven't you come down for that, too?' asked the other pressman, looking up. "'You're a journalist, aren't you?' "'I have come to see Mr. Boulnoir,' said Kidd. "'I've come to see Mrs. Boulnoir,' replied the other, "'but I shan't catch her at home.' And he laughed rather unpleasantly. "'Are you interested in catastrophism?' asked the wondering Yankee. "'I'm interested in catastrophes, and there are going to be some.' replied his companion gloomily. Mine's a filthy trade, and I never pretend it isn't. With that he spat on the floor. Yet somehow, in the very fact and instant, one could realise that the man had been brought up as a gentleman. The American pressman considered him with more attention. His face was pale and dissipated, with the promise of formidable passions yet to be loosed. But it was a clever and sensitive face. His clothes were coarse and careless, but he had a good seal-ring on one of his long, thin fingers. His name, which came out in the course of talk, was James Dalroy. He was the son of a bankrupt Irish landlord, and attached to a pink paper which he heartily despised, called Smart Society, in the capacity of reporter and of something painfully like a spy. Smart Society, I regret to say, felt none of that interest in Boulnoir on Darwin, which was such a credit to the head and hearts of the western sun. Dalroy had come down, it seemed, to snuff up the scent of a scandal, which might very well end in the divorce court, but which was at present hovering between Grey Cottage and Pendragon Park. Sir Claude Champion was known to the readers of the western sun as well as Mr. Boulnoir, so were the Pope and the Derby winner. But the idea of their intimate acquaintanceship would have struck Kidd as equally incongruous. He had heard of, and written about, nay, falsely pretended to know Sir Claude Champion as one of the brightest and wealthiest of England's upper ten, as the great sportsman who raced yachts around the world, as the great traveller who wrote books about the Himalayas, as the politician who swept constituencies with a startling sort of Tory democracy, and as the great dabbler in art, music, literature, and, above all, acting. Sir Claude was really magnificent in other than American eyes. There was something of the Renaissance prince about his omnivorous culture and restless publicity. He was not only a great amateur, but an ardent one. There was in him none of that antiquarian frivolity that we convey by the word dilettante. That faultless falcon profile with purple-black Italian eye, which had been snapshot so often for smart society and the western sun, gave everyone the impression of a man eaten by ambition as by a fire or even a disease. But though Kidd knew a great deal about Sir Claude, and a great deal more, in fact, than there was to know, it would never have crossed his wildest dreams to connect so showy an aristocrat with the newly unearthed founder of catastrophism, or to guess that Sir Claude Champion and John Boulnois could be intimate friends. Such, according to Dalroy's account, was nevertheless the fact. 
The two had hunted in couples at school and college, and, though their social destinies had been very different, for Champion was a great landlord and almost a millionaire, while Boulnoir was a poor scholar and, until just lately, an unknown one, they still kept in very close touch with each other. Indeed, Boulnoir's cottage stood just outside the gates of Pendragon Park. But whether the two men could be friends much longer was becoming a dark and ugly question. A year or two before, Boulnoir had married a beautiful and not unsuccessful actress, to whom he was devoted in his own shy and ponderous style. And the proximity of the household to champions had given that flighty celebrity opportunities for behaving in a way that could not but cause painful and rather base excitement. Sir Claude had carried the arts of publicity to perfection, and he seemed to take a crazy pleasure in being equally ostentatious in an intrigue that could do him no sort of honour. Footmen from Pendragon were perpetually leaving bouquets for Mrs. Boulnois, carriages and motor-cars were perpetually calling at the cottage for Mrs. Boulnois, balls and masquerades perpetually filled the grounds in which the baronet paraded Mrs. Boulnois like the Queen of Love and Beauty at a tournament. That very evening, marked by Mr. Kidd for the exposition of catastrophism, had been marked by Sir Claude Champion for an open-air rendering of Romeo and Juliet, in which he was to play Romeo to a Juliet it was needless to name. "'I don't think it can go on without a smash,' said the young man with the red hair, getting up and shaking himself. "'Old Bounois may be squared, or he may be square, but if he's square, he's thick, what you might call cubic.' but I don't believe it's possible. "'He's a man of grand intellectual powers,' said Cahoon Kidd, in a deep voice. "'Yes,' answered Dalroy, "'but even a man of grand intellectual powers can't be such a blighted fool as all that. "'Must you be going? I shall be following myself in a minute or two. But Cahoon Kidd, having finished a milk and soda, betook himself smartly up the road towards the grey cottage, leaving his cynical informant to his whisky and tobacco. The last of the daylight had faded. The skies were of a dark green-grey like slate, studded here and there with a star, but lighter on the left side of the sky, with the promise of a rising moon. The grey cottage, which stood entrenched, as it were, in a square of stiff, high thorn hedges, was so close under the pines and palisades of the park that Kidd at first mistook it for the park lodge. Finding the name on the narrow wooden gate, however, and seeing by his watch that the hour of the thinker's appointment had just struck, he went in and knocked at the front door. Inside the garden hedge he could see that the house, though unpretentious enough, was larger and more luxurious than it looked at first, and was quite a different kind of place from a porter's lodge. A dog-kennel and a beehive stood outside, like symbols of old English country life. The moon was rising behind a plantation of prosperous pear-trees. The dog that came out of the kennel was reverend-looking and reluctant to bark, and the plain, elderly manservant who opened the door was brief but dignified. "'Mr. Boulnois asked me to offer his apologies, sir,' he said, "'but he has been obliged to go out suddenly.' "'But, see here, I had an appointment,' said the interviewer, with a rising voice. "'Do you know where he went to?' to Pendragon Park, sir, said the servant rather somberly, and began to close the door. Kidd started a little. Did he go with Mrs. with the rest of the party, he asked rather vaguely. 
"'No, sir,' said the man shortly. "'He stayed behind, and then he went out alone.' "'And he shut the door brutally, but with an air of duty not done. "'The American, that curious compound of impudence and sensitiveness, was annoyed. "'He felt a strong desire to hustle them all along a bit and teach them business habits. "'The hoary old dog and the grizzled, heavy-faced old butler with his prehistoric shirt-front, "'and the drowsy old moon.' and above all the scatter-brained old philosopher who couldn't keep an appointment. "'If that's the way he goes on, he deserved to lose his wife's purest devotion,' said Mr. Cahoon Kidd. "'But perhaps he's gone over to make a row. In that case I reckon a man from the western sun will be on the spot.' And, turning the corner by the open lodge gates, he set off, stumping up the long avenue of black pine woods that pointed in abrupt perspective towards the inner gardens of Pendragon Park. The trees were as black and orderly as plumes upon a hearse. There were still a few stars. He was a man with more literary than direct natural associations. The word Ravenswood came into his head repeatedly. It was partly the raven colour of the pine wood, but partly also the indescribable atmosphere almost described in Scott's great tragedy. The smell of something that died in the eighteenth century, the smell of dank gardens and broken urns, of wrongs that will never now be righted, of something that is nonetheless incurably sad, because it is strangely unreal. More than once, as he went up the strange black road of tragic artifice, he stopped, startled, thinking he heard steps in front of him. He could see nothing in front but the twin, sombre walls of pine and the wedge of starlit sky above them. At first he thought he must have fancied it, or been mocked by a mere echo of his own tramp. But as he went on, he was more and more inclined to conclude, with the remains of his reason, that there really were other feet upon the road. He thought hazily of ghosts, and was surprised how swiftly he could see the image of an appropriate and local ghost, one with a face as white as a Piero's, but patched with black. The apex of the triangle of dark blue sky was growing brighter and bluer, but he did not realise as yet that this was because he was coming nearer to the lights of the great house and garden. He only felt that the atmosphere was growing more intense, there was in the sadness more violence and secrecy, more, he hesitated for the word, and then said it with a jerk of laughter, catastrophism. More pines, more pathways slid past him, and then he stood rooted as by a blast of magic. It is vain to say that he felt as if he had got into a dream but this time he felt quite certain that he had got into a book. For we human beings are used to inappropriate things. We are accustomed to the clatter of the incongruous. It is a tune to which we can go to sleep. If one appropriate thing happens, it wakes us up like the pang of a perfect chord. Something happens such as would have happened in such a place in a forgotten tale. Over the black pinewood came flying and flashing in the moon a naked sword, such a slender and sparkling rapier as may have fought many an unjust duel in that ancient park. It fell on the pathway far in front of him, and lay there glistening like a large needle. He ran like a hare and bent to look at it. Seen at close quarters it had rather a showy look. The big red jewels in the hilt and guard were a little dubious. But there were other red drops upon the blade which were not dubious. He looked round wildly in the direction from which the dazzling missile had come, and saw that at this point the sable façade of fir and pine 
was interrupted by a smaller road at right angles, which, when he turned it, brought him in full view of the long, lighted house, with a lake and fountains in front of it. Nevertheless, he did not look at this, having something more interesting to look at. Above him, at the angle of the steep green bank of the terrace garden, was one of those small, picturesque surprises common in the old landscape gardening, a kind of small round hill or dome of grass, like a giant molehill, ringed and crowned with three concentric fences of roses, and having a sundial in the highest point in the centre. Kidd could see the finger of the dial stand up dark against the sky like the dorsal fin of a shark, and the vain moonlight clinging to that idle clock. But he saw something else clinging to it also, for one wild moment, the figure of a man. Though he saw it there only for a moment, though it was outlandish and incredible in costume, being clad from neck to heel in tight crimson with glints of gold, yet he knew in one flash of moonlight who it was. That white face flung up to heaven, clean-shaven and so unnaturally young, like Byron with a Roman nose, those black curls already grizzled, he had seen the thousand public portraits of Sir Claude Champion. The wild red figure reeled an instant against the sundial. The next it had rolled down the steep bank and lay at the American's feet, faintly moving one arm. A gaudy, unnatural gold ornament on the arm suddenly reminded Kidd of Romeo and Juliet. Of course, the tight crimson suit was part of the play. But there was a long red stain down the bank from which the man had rolled that was not part of the play. He had been run through the body. Mr. Cahoon Kidd shouted and shouted again. Once more he seemed to hear phantasmal footsteps, and started to find another figure already near him. He knew the figure, and yet it terrified him. The dissipated youth who had called himself Dalroy had a horribly quiet way with him. If Boulnois failed to keep appointments that had been made, Dalroy had a sinister air of keeping appointments that hadn't. The moonlight discoloured everything. Against Dalroy's red hair his wan face looked not so much white as pale green. All this morbid impressionism must be Kidd's excuse for having cried out, brutally and beyond all reason, "'Did you do this, you devil?' James Dalroy smiled his unpleasing smile. But before he could speak, the fallen figure made another movement of the arm, waving vaguely towards the place where the sword fell. Then came a moan, and then it managed to speak. Boulnois, Boulnois, I say, Boulnois did it, jealous of me, he was jealous, he was, he was. Kidd bent his head down to hear more, and just managed to catch the words, Boulnois, with my own sword, he threw it. Again the failing hand waved towards the sword, and then fell rigid with a thud. In Kidd rose from its depth all that acrid humour that is the strange salt of the seriousness of his race. "'See here,' he said sharply and with command, "'you must fetch a doctor. This man's dead.' "'And a priest, too, I suppose,' said Dalroy, in an undecipherable manner. "'All these champions are papists.' The American knelt down by the body, felt the heart, propped up the head, and used some last efforts at restoration. But before the other journalist reappeared, followed by a doctor and a priest, he was already prepared to assert they were too late. 
"'Were you too late also?' asked the doctor, a solid, prosperous-looking man, with conventional moustache and whiskers, but a lively eye, which darted over Kidd dubiously. "'In one sense,' drawled the representative of the sun, "'I was too late to save the man, but I guess I was in time to hear something of importance. I heard the dead man denounce his assassin.' "'And who was the assassin?' asked the doctor, drawing his eyebrows together. "'Boulnois,' said Cahoon Kidd, and whistled softly. The doctor stared at him gloomily with a reddening brow, but he did not contradict. Then the priest, a shorter figure in the background, said, mildly, "'I understood that Mr. Boulnois was not coming to Pendragon Park this evening.' There again, said the Yankee grimly, I may be in a position to give the old country a fact or two. Yes, sir, John Boulnois was going to stay in all this evening. He fixed up a real good appointment there with me. But John Boulnois changed his mind. John Boulnois left his home abruptly and all alone, and came over to this darn park an hour or so ago. His butler told me so. I think we hold what the all-wise police call a clue. "'Have you sent for them?' "'Yes,' said the doctor. "'But we haven't alarmed anyone else yet.' "'Does Mrs. Boulnois know?' asked James Dalroy. And again Kidd was conscious of an irrational desire to hit him on his curling mouth. "'I've not told her,' said the doctor gruffly. "'But here come the police.' The little priest had stepped out into the main avenue, and now returned with the fallen sword, which looked ludicrously large and theatrical when attached to his dumpy figure, at once clerical and commonplace. "'Just before the police come,' he said apologetically, "'has anyone got a light?' The Yankee journalist took an electric torch from his pocket, and the priest held it close to the middle part of the blade, which he examined with blinking care. Then, without glancing at the point or pommel, he handed the long weapon to the doctor. "'I fear I'm no use here,' he said, with a brief sigh. "'I'll say good-night to you, gentlemen.' And he walked away up the dark avenue towards the house, his hands clasped behind him, and his big head bent in cogitation. The rest of the group made increased haste towards the lodge gates, where an inspector and two constables could already be seen in consultation with the log-keeper. But the little priest only walked slower and slower, in the dim cloister of pine, and at last stopped dead on the steps of the house. It was his silent way of acknowledging an equally silent approach, for there came towards him a presence that might have satisfied even Cahoon Kidd's demands for a lovely and aristocratic ghost. It was a young woman in silvery satins of a Renaissance design. She had golden hair in two long shining ropes and a face so startlingly pale between them that she might have been Chris Elephantine, made, that is, like some old Greek statues, out of ivory and gold. But her eyes were very bright, and her voice, though low, was confident. "'Father Brown,' she said. "'Mrs. Boulnois,' he replied gravely. Then he looked at her and immediately said, "'I see you know about Sir Claude.' "'How do you know I know?' she asked steadily. He did not answer the question, but asked another. "'Have you seen your husband?' "'My husband is at home,' she said. "'He has nothing to do with this.' Again he did not answer. 
and the woman drew nearer to him with a curiously intense expression on her face. "'Shall I tell you something more?' she said, with a rather fearful smile. "'I don't think he did it, and you don't either.' Father Brown returned her gaze with a long, grave stare, and then nodded yet more gravely. "'Father Brown,' said the lady, "'I'm going to tell you all I know.' "'But I want you to do me a favour first. "'Will you tell me why you haven't jumped to the conclusion of poor John's guilt, "'as all the rest have done? "'Don't mind what you say. I, "'I know about the gossip and the appearances that are against me.' "'Father Brown looked honestly embarrassed, and passed his hand across his forehead. Two very little things,' he said. "'At least, one's very trivial, and the other very vague. "'But such as they are, they don't fit in with Mr. Boulnois being the murderer.' He turned his blank, round face up to the stars, and continued absent-mindedly. To take the vague idea first, I attach a good deal of importance to vague ideas. All those things that aren't evidence are what convince me. I think a moral impossibility the biggest of all impossibilities. I know your husband only slightly, but I think this crime of his, as generally conceived, something very like a moral impossibility. Please do not think I mean that Boulnois could not be so wicked. Anybody can be wicked, as wicked as he chooses. We can direct our moral wills, but we can't generally change our instinctive tastes and ways of doing things. Boulnois might commit a murder, but not this murder. He would not snatch Romeo's sword from its romantic scabbard, or slay his foe on the sundial as on a kind of altar or leave his body among the roses, or fling the sword away among the pines. If Boulnois killed anyone, he'd do it quietly and heavily, as he'd do any other doubtful thing. Take a tenth glass of port, or read a loose Greek poet. No, the romantic setting is not like Boulnois. It's more like Champion. Ah, she said, and looked at him with eyes like diamonds. "'And the trivial thing was this,' said Brown. "'There were fingerprints on that sword. "'Fingerprints can be detected quite a time after they are made, "'if they're on some polished surface like glass or steel. "'These were on a polished surface. "'They were half-way down the blade of the sword. "'Whose prints they were, I have no earthly clue. "'But why should anybody hold a sword half-way down? "'It was a long sword, but length is an advantage in lunging at an enemy.' at least at most enemies, at all enemies except one. Except one, she repeated. There is only one enemy, said Father Brown, whom it is easier to kill with a dagger than a sword. I know, said the woman, oneself. There was a long silence, and then the priest said quietly but abruptly, Am I right then? Did Sir Claude kill himself? Yes, she said, with a face like marble. I saw him do it. "'He died,' said Father Brown, "'of love for you.' An extraordinary expression flashed across her face, very different from pity, modesty, remorse, or anything her companion had expected. Her voice became suddenly strong and full. "'I don't believe,' she said, "'he ever cared about me a rap. He hated my husband.' "'Why?' asked the other, and turned his round face from the sky to the lady." He hated my husband because—it's so strange I hardly know how to say it—because—yes,' said Brown patiently, "'because my husband wouldn't hate him.' 
Father Brown only nodded and seemed still to be listening. He differed from most detectives in fact and fiction in a small point. He never pretended not to understand when he understood perfectly well. Mrs. Boulnoir drew near once more with the same contained glow of certainty. My husband, she said, is a great man. Sir Claude Champion was not a great man. He was a celebrated and successful man. My husband has never been celebrated or successful, and it is the solemn truth that he has never dreamed of being so. He no more expects to be famous for thinking than for smoking cigars. On all that side he has a sort of splendid stupidity. He has never grown up. He still liked Champion exactly as he'd liked him at school. He admired him as he would admire a conjuring trick done at the dinner-table. But he couldn't be got to conceive the notion of envying Champion. And Champion wanted to be envied. He went mad and killed himself for that. "'Yes,' said Father Brown, "'I think I begin to understand.' "'Oh, don't you see?' she cried. "'The whole picture is made for that. "'The place is planned for it. "'Champion put John in a little house at his very door, "'like a dependent, to make him feel a failure. "'He never felt it. "'He thinks no more about such things than, than an absent-minded lion. "'Champion would burst in on John's shabbiest hours or homeliest meals "'with some dazzling present or announcement "'or expedition that made it like the visit of Harun al-Rashid.' and John would accept or refuse amiably with one eye off, so to speak, like one lazy schoolboy agreeing or disagreeing with another. After five years of it, John had not turned a hair, and Sir Claude Champion was a monomaniac. And Haman began to tell them, said Father Brown, of all the things wherein the king had honoured him. And he said, All these things profit me nothing, while I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the gate. The crisis came, Mrs. Boulnoir continued, when I persuaded John to let me take down some of his speculations and send them to a magazine. They began to attract attention, especially in America, and one paper wanted to interview him. When Champion, who was interviewed nearly every day, heard of this late little crumb of success falling to his unconscious rival, the last link snapped that held back his devilish hatred. Then he began to lay that insane siege to my own love and honour, which has been the talk of the Shire. You will ask me why I allowed such atrocious attentions. I answer that I could not have declined them, except by explaining to my husband, and there are some things a soul cannot do, as the body cannot fly. Nobody could have explained to my husband. Nobody could do it now. If you say to him in so many words, Champion is stealing your wife, he would think the joke a little vulgar, that it could be anything but a joke, that notion could find no crack in his great skull to get in by. Well, John was to come and see us act this evening, but just as we were starting he said he wouldn't. He had got an interesting book and a cigar. I told this to Sir Claude, and it was his death-blow. The monomaniac suddenly saw despair. He stabbed himself, crying out like a devil that Boulnoir was slaying him. He lies there in the garden, dead of his own jealousy to produce jealousy, and John is sitting in the dining-room reading a book. There was another silence, and then the priest said, "'There is only one weak point, Mrs. Boulnoir, in all your very vivid account. Your husband is not sitting in the dining-room reading a book. 
That American reporter told me he had been to your house, and your butler told him Mr. Boulnoir had gone to Pendragon Park after all. Her bright eyes widened to an almost electric glare, and yet it seemed rather bewilderment than confusion or fear. Why, what do you mean? she cried. All the servants were out of the house seeing the theatricals, and we don't keep a butler, thank goodness. Father Brown started and spun half round like an absurd teetotum. What, what? he cried, seeming galvanized into sudden life. Look here, I say, can I make your husband here if I go to the house? Oh, the servants will be back by now, she said, wondering. Right, right, rejoined the cleric energetically, and set off scuttling up the path towards the park gates. He turned once to say, Better get hold of that Yankee, or crime of John Boulnoir will be all over the Republic in large letters. You don't understand, said Mrs. Boulnoir. He wouldn't mind. I don't think he imagines that America really is a place. When Father Brown reached the house with the beehive and the drowsy dog, a small and neat maidservant showed him into the dining-room, where Boulnoir sat reading by a shaded lamp, exactly as his wife had described him. A decanter of port and a wine-glass were at his elbow, and the instant the priest entered he noted the long ash stand out unbroken on his cigar. He has been here for half an hour at least, thought Father Brown. In fact, he had the air of sitting where he had sat when his dinner was cleared away. Don't get up, Mr. Boulnoir, said the priest in his pleasant, prosaic way. I shan't interrupt you a moment. I fear I break in on some of your scientific studies. No, said Boulnoir, I was reading The Bloody Thumb. He said it with neither frown nor smile, and his visitor was conscious of a certain deep and virile indifference in the man which his wife had called greatness. He laid down a gory yellow shocker without even feeling its incongruity enough to comment on it humorously. John Boulnoir was a big, slow-moving man with a massive head, partly grey and partly bald, and blunt, burly features. He was in shabby and very old-fashioned evening dress, with a narrow triangular opening of shirt-front. He had assumed it that evening in his original purpose of going to see his wife act Juliet. "'I won't keep you long from the bloody thumb or any other catastrophic affairs,' said Father Brown, smiling. "'I only came to ask you about the crime you committed this evening.' Boulnoir looked at him steadily but a red bar began to show across his broad brow, and he seemed like one discovering embarrassment for the first time. "'I know it was a strange crime,' assented Brown in a low voice. "'Stranger than murder, perhaps, to you. The little sins are sometimes harder to confess than the big ones. But that's why it's so important to confess them. Your crime is committed by every fashionable hostess six times a week and yet you find it sticks to your tongue like a nameless atrocity. "'It makes one feel,' said the philosopher slowly, "'such a damn fool.' "'I know,' assented the other, "'but one often has to choose between feeling a damn fool and being one.' "'I can't analyse myself well,' went on Boulnoir, "'but sitting in that chair with that story "'I was as happy as a schoolboy on a half-holiday. "'It was security, eternity. "'I can't convey it.' The cigars were within reach, the matches were within reach, the thumb had four more appearances to—it was not only a peace but a plenitude. 
Then that bell rang, and I thought for one long mortal minute that I couldn't get out of that chair, literally, physically, muscularly, couldn't. Then I did it like a man lifting the world, because I knew all the servants were out. I opened the front door, and there was a little man with his mouth open to speak and his notebook open to write in. I remembered the Yankee interviewer I'd forgotten. His hair was parted in the middle, and I tell you that murder— I understand, said Father Brown. I've seen him. I didn't commit murder, continued the catastrophist mildly, but only perjury. I said I had gone across to Pendragon Park and shut the door in his face. That is my crime, Father Brown, and I don't know what penance you would inflict for it. I shan't inflict any penance, said the clerical gentleman, collecting his heavy hat and umbrella with an air of some amusement. Quite the contrary. I came here specially to let you off the little penance which would otherwise have followed your little offence. And what, asked Boulnoir, smiling, is the little penance I have so luckily been let off? Being hanged, said Father Brown. End of chapter. The Wisdom of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Twelve: The Fairy Tale of Father Brown. The picturesque city and state of Heiligwaldenstein was one of those toy kingdoms of which certain parts of the German Empire still consist. It had come under the Prussian hegemony quite late in history, hardly fifty years before the fine summer day when Flambeau and Father Brown found themselves sitting in its gardens and drinking its beer. There had been not a little of war and wild justice there within living memory, as soon will be shown. But in merely looking at it one could not dismiss that impression of childishness which is the most charming side of Germany. Those little pantomime, paternal monarchies in which a king seems as domestic as a cook. The German soldiers by the innumerable sentry-boxes looked strangely like German toys, and the clean-cut battlements of the castle, gilded by the sunshine, looked the more like the gilt gingerbread. For it was brilliant weather. The sky was as Prussian a blue as Potsdam itself could require, but it was yet more like that lavish and glowing use of colour which a child extracts from a shilling paint-box. Even the grey-ribbed trees looked young for the pointed buds on them were still pink, and in a pattern against the strong blue looked like innumerable childish figures. Despite his prosaic appearance and general practical walk of life, Father Brown was not without a certain streak of romance in his composition, though he generally kept his daydreams to himself as many children do. Amid the brisk bright colours of such a day, and in the heraldic framework of such a town, he did feel rather as if he had entered a fairy tale. He took a childish pleasure, as a younger brother might, in the formidable sword-stick which Flambeau always flung as he walked, and which now stood upright beside his tall mug of Munich. Nay, in his sleepy irresponsibility, he even found himself eyeing the knobbed and clumsy head of his own shabby umbrella, with some faint memories of the ogre's club in a coloured toy-book but he never composed anything in the form of fiction, unless it be the tale that follows. I wonder, he said, whether one would have real adventures in a place like this, 
if one put oneself in the way. It's a splendid back scene for them, but I always have a kind of feeling that they would fight you with pasteboard sabres more than real horrible swords. You're mistaken, said his friend. In this place they not only fight with swords, but kill without swords, and there's worse than that. Why, what do you mean? asked Father Brown. Why, replied the other, I should say this was the only place in Europe where a man was ever shot without firearms. Do you mean a bow and arrow? asked Brown, in some wonder. I mean a bullet in the brain, replied Flambeau. Don't you know the story of the late prince of this place? It was one of the great police mysteries about twenty years ago. You remember, of course, that this place was forcibly annexed at the time of Bismarck's very earliest schemes of consolidation. Forcibly, that is, but not at all easily, the empire, or what wanted to be one, sent Prince Otto of Grossenmark to rule the place in the imperial interests. We saw his portrait in the gallery there, a handsome old gentleman, if he'd had any hair or eyebrows, and hadn't been wrinkled all over like a vulture. But he had things to harass him, as I'll explain in a minute. He was a soldier of distinguished skill and success, but he didn't have altogether an easy job with this little place. He was defeated in several battles by the celebrated Arnhold brothers, the three guerrilla patriots to whom Swinburne wrote a poem, you remember, Wolves with the hair of the ermine, Crows that are crowned, and kings, These things may be as vermin, Yet three shall abide these things. Or something of that kind. Indeed, it is by no means certain that the occupation would ever have been successful had not one of the three brothers, Paul, despicably but very decisively declined to abide these things any longer, and, by surrendering all the secrets of the insurrection, ensured its overthrow and his own ultimate promotion to the post of Chamberlain to Prince Otto. After this, Ludwig, the one genuine hero among Mr. Swinburne's heroes, was killed, sword in hand, in the capture of the city. And the third, Heinrich, who, though not a traitor, had always been tame and even timid compared with his active brothers, retired into something like a hermitage, became converted to a Christian quietism, which was almost Quakerish, and never mixed with men except to give nearly all he had to the poor. They tell me that not long ago he could still be seen about the neighbourhood occasionally, a man in a black coat, nearly blind, with very wild white hair, but a face of astonishing softness. I know, said Father Rowan, I saw him once. His friend looked at him in some surprise. I didn't know you'd been here before, he said. Perhaps you know as much about it as I do. Anyhow, that's the story of the Arnholds, and he was the last survivor of them. Yes, and of all the men who played parts in that drama. You mean that the prince, too, died long before? Died, repeated Flambeau, and that's about as much as we can say. You must understand that towards the end of his life he began to have those tricks of the nerves not uncommon with tyrants. He multiplied the ordinary daily and nightly guard around the castle, till there seemed to be more sentry-boxes than houses in the town, and doubtful characters were shot without mercy. He lived almost entirely in a little room that was in the very centre of the enormous labyrinth of all the other rooms, and even in this he erected another sort of central cabin or cupboard lined with steel, like a safe or a battleship. 
Some say that under the floor of this, again, was a secret hole in the earth, no more than large enough to hold him, so that, in his anxiety to avoid the grave, he was willing to go into a place pretty much like it. But he went further yet. The populace had been supposed to be disarmed ever since the suppression of the revolt, but Otto now insisted, as governments very seldom insist, on an absolute and literal disarmament. It was carried out with extraordinary thoroughness and severity by very well-organized officials over a small and familiar area, and, so far as human strength and science can be absolutely certain of anything, Prince Otto was absolutely certain that nobody could introduce so much as a toy pistol into Heilig Waldenstein. Human science can never be quite certain of things like that, said Father Brown, still looking at the red buddings of the branches over his head, if only because of the difficulty about definition and connotation. What is a weapon? People have been murdered with the mildest domestic comforts, certainly with tea-kettles, probably with tea-cosies. On the other hand, if you showed an ancient Briton a revolver, I doubt if he would know it was a weapon, until it was fired into him, of course. Perhaps somebody introduced a firearm so new that it didn't even look like a firearm. Perhaps it looked like a thimble or something. Was the bullet at all peculiar? Not that I ever heard of, answered Flambeau, but my information is fragmentary, and only comes from my old friend Grimm. He was a very able detective in the German service, and he tried to arrest me. I arrested him instead, and we had many interesting chats. He was in charge here of the inquiry about Prince Otto, but I forgot to ask him anything about the bullet. According to Grimm, what happened was this. He paused a moment to drain the greater part of his dark lager at a draught, and then resumed. On the evening in question, it seems, the Prince was expected to appear in one of the outer rooms because he had to receive certain visitors who he really wished to meet. They were geological experts sent to investigate the old question of the alleged supply of gold from the rocks around here, upon which, as it was said, the small city-state had so long maintained its credit and been able to negotiate with its neighbours, even under the ceaseless bombardment of bigger armies. Hitherto it had never been found by the most exacting inquiry which could be quite certain of discovering a toy pistol, said Father Brown with a smile. But what about the brother who ratted? Hadn't he anything to tell the prince? He always asseverated that he did not know, replied Flambeau, that this was the one secret his brothers had not told him. It is only right to say that it received some support from fragmentary words, spoken by the great Ludwig in the hour of death, when he looked at Heinrich but pointed at Paul and said, You have not told him, and was soon afterwards incapable of speech. Anyhow, the deputation of distinguished geologists and mineralogists from Paris and Berlin were there in the most magnificent and appropriate dress, for there are no men who like wearing their decorations so much as the men of science, as anybody knows who has ever been to a soiree of the Royal Society. It was a brilliant gathering, but very late, and gradually the Chamberlain—you saw his portrait too—a man with black eyebrows, serious eyes, and a meaningless sort of smile underneath, the Chamberlain, I say, discovered there was everything there except the Prince himself. He searched all the outer salons, then, remembering the man's mad fits of fear, hurried to the inmost chamber. That was also empty, but the steel turret or cabin erected in the middle of it took some time to open. 
When it did open, it was empty too. He went and looked into the hole in the ground, which seemed deeper and somehow all the more like a grave, that is his account, of course, and even as he did so, he heard a burst of cries and tumult in the long rooms and corridors without. First it was a distant din and thrill of something unthinkable on the horizon of the crowd, even beyond the castle. Next it was a wordless clamour, startlingly close, and loud enough to be distinct if each word had not killed the other. Next came words of terrible clearness, coming nearer, and next one man rushing into the room and telling the news as briefly as such news is told. Otto, Prince of Heiling, Waldenstein and Grossenmark, was lying in the dews of the darkening twilight in the woods beyond the castle, with his arms flung out and his face flung up to the moon. The blood still pulsed from his shattered temple and jaw, but it was the only part of him that moved like a living thing. He was clad in his full white and yellow uniform, as to receive his guests within, except that the sash or scarf had been unbound and lay rather crumpled by his side. Before he could be lifted he was dead, but, dead or alive, he was a riddle. He, who had always hidden in the inmost chamber, out there in the wet woods, unarmed and alone. "'Who found his body?' asked Father Brown. "'Some girl attached to the court named Hedvig von something or other,' replied his friend, who had been out in the wood picking wild flowers. "'Had she picked any?' asked the priest, staring rather vacantly at the veil of branches above him. "'Yes,' replied Flambeau. "'I particularly remember that the Chamberlain, or old Grimm or somebody, said how horrible it was, when they came up at her call, to see a girl holding spring flowers and bending over that, that bloody collapse.' However, the main point is that before help arrived he was dead, and the news, of course, had to be carried back to the castle. The consternation it created was something beyond even that natural inner court at the fall of a potentate. The foreign visitors, especially the mining experts, were in the wildest doubt and excitement, as well as many important Prussian officials, and it soon began to be clear that the scheme for finding the treasure bulked much bigger in the business than people had supposed. Experts and officials had been promised great prizes or international advantages, and some even said that the prince's secret apartments and strong military protection were due less to fear of the populace than to the pursuit of some private investigation of— "'Had the flowers got long stalks?' asked Father Brown. Flambeau stared at him. "'What an odd person you are,' he said. "'That's exactly what old Grimm said. "'He said the ugliest part of it,' he thought, "'uglier than the blood and the bullet, "'was that the flowers were quite short, "'plucked close under the head.' "'Of course,' said the priest, "'when a grown-up girl is really picking flowers, "'she picks them with plenty of stalk. "'If she just pulled their heads off, as a child does, "'it looks as if—' and he hesitated. "'Well,' inquired the other, "'well, it looks rather as if she had snatched them nervously to make an excuse for being there after, well, after she was there. "'I know what you're driving at,' said Flambeau rather gloomily, "'but that and every other suspicion breaks down on the one point, the want of a weapon. "'He could have been killed, as you say, with lots of other things, even with his own military sash. "'But we have to explain not how he was killed, but how he was shot. "'And the fact is we can't.' They had the girl most ruthlessly searched, for, to tell the truth, she was a little suspect, though the niece and ward of the wicked old chamberlain, Paul Arnhold. 
but she was very romantic and was suspected of sympathy with the old revolutionary enthusiasm in her family. All the same, however romantic you are, you can't imagine a big bullet into a man's jaw or brain without using a gun or pistol. And there was no pistol, though there were two pistol shots. I leave it to you, my friend. How do you know there were two shots? asked the priest. There was only one in the head, said his companion, but there was another bullet hole in the sash. Father Brown's smooth brow became suddenly constricted. Was the other bullet found? he demanded. Flambeau started a little. I don't think I remember, he said. Hold on, hold on, hold on, cried Brown, frowning more and more, with a quite unusual concentration of curiosity. Don't think me rude. Let me think this out for a moment. All right, said Flambeau, laughing, and finished his beer. A slight breeze stirred the budding trees, and blew up into the sky cloudlets of white and pink that seemed to make the sky bluer and the whole coloured scene more quaint. They might have been cherubs flying home to the casements of a sort of celestial nursery. The oldest tower of the castle, the Dragon Tower, stood up as grotesque as the ale mug, but as homely. Only beyond the tower glimmered the wood in which the man had lain dead. What became of this Hedvig eventually asked the priest at last? She's married to General Schwartz, said Flambeau. No doubt you've heard of his career, which was rather romantic. He had distinguished himself even before his exploits at Sadova and Gravelotte. In fact, he rose from the ranks, which is very unusual even in the smallest of the German. Father Brown sat up suddenly. Rose from the ranks, he cried, and made a mouth as if to whistle. Well, well, what a queer story, what a queer way of killing a man. But I suppose it was the only one possible. But to think of hate so patient. What do you mean? demanded the other. In what way did they kill the man? They killed him with the sash, said Brown carefully. And then, as Flambeau protested, yes, yes, I know about the bullet. Perhaps I ought to say he died of having a sash. I know it doesn't sound like having a disease. I suppose, said Flambeau, that you've got some notion in your head, but it won't easily get the bullet out of this. As I explained before, he might easily have been strangled, but he was shot. By whom? By what? He was shot by his own orders, said the priest. You mean he committed suicide? I didn't say by his own wish, replied Father Brown. I said by his own orders. Well, anyhow, what's your theory? Father Brown laughed. I'm only on my holiday, he said. I haven't got any theories. Only this place reminds me of fairy stories, and, if you like, I'll tell you a story. The little pink clouds that looked rather like sweet stuff had floated up to crown the turrets of the gilt gingerbread castle, and the pink baby fingers of the budding trees seemed spreading and stretching to reach them. The blue sky began to take a bright violet of evening, when Father Brown suddenly spoke again. It was on a dismal night, with rain still dropping from the trees and dew already clustering, that Prince Otto of Grossenmark stepped hurriedly out of a side door of the castle and walked swiftly into the wood. One of the innumerable sentries saluted him, but he did not notice it. He had no wish to be specially noticed himself. He was glad when the great trees, grey and already greasy with rain, swallowed him up like a swamp. He had deliberately chosen the least frequented side of his palace, 
but even that was more frequented than he liked. But there was no particular chance of officious or diplomatic pursuit, for his exit had been a sudden impulse. All the full-dressed diplomats he left behind him were unimportant. He had realised suddenly that he could do without them. His great passion was not the much nobler dread of death, but the strange desire of gold. For this legend of the gold he had left Grossenmark and invaded Heilig Waldenstein. For this, and only this, he had bought the traitor and butchered the hero. For this he had long questioned and cross-questioned the false chamberlain, until he had come to the conclusion that, touching his ignorance, the renegade really told the truth. For this he had, somewhat reluctantly, paid and promised money on the chance of gaining the larger amount, and for this he had stolen out of his palace like a thief in the rain, for he had thought of another way to get the desire of his eyes and to get it cheap. Away at the upper end of a rambling mountain path to which he was making his way, among the pillared rocks along the ridge that hangs above the town, stood the hermitage, hardly more than a cavern fenced with thorn, in which the third of the great brethren had long hidden himself from the world. He, thought Prince Otto, could have no real reason for refusing to give up the gold. He had known its place for years, and made no effort to find it, even before his new ascetic creed had cut him off from property or pleasures. True, he had been an enemy, but he now professed a duty of having no enemies. Some concession to this cause, some appeal to his principles, would probably get the mere money secret out of him. Otto was no coward, in spite of his network of military precautions, and, in any case, his avarice was stronger than his fears. Nor was there much cause for fear, since he was certain there were no private arms in the whole principality. He was a hundred times more certain there were none in the Quaker's little hermitage on the hill, where he lived on herbs, with two old rustic servants, and with no other voice of a man for year after year. Prince Otto looked down with something of a grim smile at the bright square labyrinth of the lamp-lit city below him. For as far as the eye could see there ran the rifles of his friends, and not one pinch of powder for his enemies. Rifles ranked so close even to that mountain path that a cry from him would bring the soldiers rushing up the hill, to say nothing of the fact that the wood and ridge were patrolled at regular intervals. Rifles so far away in the dim woods dwarfed by distance beyond the river that an enemy could not slink into town by any detour. And round the palace, rifles at the west door and the east door, at the north door and the south, and all along the four facades linking them, he was safe. It was all the more clear when he had crested the ridge and found how naked was the nest of his old enemy. He found himself on a small platform of rock broken abruptly by the three corners of precipice. Behind him was the black cave masked with green thorn, so low that it was hard to believe that a man could enter it. In front was the fall of the cliffs and the vast but cloudy vision of the valley. On the small rock platform stood an old bronze lectern or reading-stand groaning under a great German Bible. The bronze or copper of it had grown green with the eating airs of that exalted place, and Otto had instantly the thought, even if they had arms they must be rusted by now. Moonrise had already made a deathly dawn behind the crests and crags, and the rain had ceased. Behind the lectern, and looking across the valley, stood a very old man, 
in a black robe that fell as straight as the cliffs around him, but whose white hair and weak voice seemed alike to waver in the wind. He was evidently reading some daily lesson as part of his religious exercises. They trust in their horses. Sir, said the Prince of Heiligenwaldenstein, with quite unusual courtesy, I should like only one word with you. And in their chariots, went on the man weakly, but we will trust in the name of the Lord of hosts. His last words were inaudible, but he closed the book reverently and, being nearly blind, made a groping movement and gripped the reading stand. Instantly his two servants slipped out of the low-browed cavern and supported him. They wore dull black gowns like his own, but they had not the frosty silver on the hair nor the frost-bitten refinement of the features. They were peasants, Croat or Magyar, with broad, blunt visages and blinking eyes. For the first time something troubled the prince, but his courage and diplomatic sense stood firm. "'I fear we have not met,' he said, "'since that awful cannonade in which your poor brother died.' "'All my brothers died,' said the old man, still looking across the valley. Then, for one instant, turning on Otto his drooping, delicate features, and the wintry hair that seemed to drip over his eyebrows like icicles, he added, "'You see, I am dead, too.' "'I hope you'll understand,' said the prince, controlling himself almost to a point of conciliation, "'that I do not come here to haunt you as a mere ghost of those great quarrels.' We will not talk about who was right or wrong in that, but at least there was one point on which we were never wrong, because you were always right. Whatever is to be said of the policy of your family, no one for one moment imagines that you were moved by the mere gold. You had proved yourself above suspicion that— The old man in the blackened gown had hitherto continued to gaze at him with watery blue eyes and a sort of weak wisdom in his face. But when the word gold was said, he held out his hand as if in arrest of something, and turned away his face to the mountains. "'He has spoken of gold,' he said. "'He has spoken of things not lawful. Let him cease to speak.' Otto had the vice of his Prussian type and tradition, which is to regard success not as an incident but as a quality. He conceived himself, and his like, as perpetually conquering peoples, who were perpetually being conquered. Consequently, he was ill acquainted with the emotion of surprise, and ill prepared for the next movement which startled and stiffened him. He had opened his mouth to answer the hermit, when the mouth was stopped and the voice strangled by a strong, soft gag, suddenly twisted round his head like a tourniquet. It was fully forty seconds before he even realised that the two Hungarian servants had done it, and they had done it with his own military scarf. The old man went again weakly to his great brazen-supported Bible, turned over the leaves with a patience that had something horrible about it, till he came to the Epistle of St. James, and then began to read, The tongue is a little member, but... Something in the very voice made the prince turn suddenly and plunge down the mountain path he had climbed. He was halfway towards the gardens of the palace before he even tried to tear the strangling scarf from his neck and jaws. He tried again and again, and it was impossible. The men who had knotted that gag knew the difference between what a man can do with his hands in front of him 
and what he can do with his hands behind his head. His legs were free to leap like an antelope on the mountains. His arms were free to use any gesture or wave any signal, but he could not speak. A dumb devil was in him. He had come close to the woods that walled in the castle, before he had quite realised what his wordless state meant, and was meant to mean. Once more he looked down grimly at the bright square labyrinths of the lamplit city below him, and he smiled no more. He felt himself repeating the phrases of his former mood with a murderous irony. Far as the eye could see ran the rifles of his friends, every one of whom would shoot him dead if he could not answer the challenge. Rifles were so near that the wood and ridge could be patrolled at regular intervals. Therefore it was useless to hide in the wood till morning. Rifles were ranked so far away that an enemy could not slink into the town by any detour. Therefore it was vain to return to the city by any remote course. A cry from him would bring his soldiers rushing up the hill. But from him no cry would come. The moon had risen in strengthening silver and the sky showed in stripes of bright nocturnal blue between the black stripes of the pines about the castle. Flowers of some wide and feathery sort, for he had never noticed such things before, were at once luminous and discoloured by the moonshine, and seemed indescribably fantastic as they clustered, as if crawling about the roots of the trees. Perhaps his reason had been suddenly unseated by the unnatural captivity he carried with him, but in that wood he felt something unfathomably German, the fairy tale. He knew with half his mind that he was drawing near to the castle of an ogre. He had forgotten that he was the ogre. He remembered asking his mother if bears lived in the old park at home. He stooped to pick a flower as if it were a charm against enchantment. The stalk was stronger than he expected and broke with a slight snap. Carefully trying to place it in his scarf, he heard the halloo, Who goes there? Then he remembered the scarf was not in its usual place. He tried to scream and was silent. The second challenge came, and then a shot that shrieked as it came, and then was stilled suddenly by impact. Otto of Grossenmark lay very peacefully among the fairy trees, and would do no more harm either with gold or steel. Only the silver pencil of the moon would pick out and trace here and there the intricate ornament of his uniform, or the old wrinkles on his brow. May God have mercy on his soul. The sentry who had fired, according to the strict orders of the garrison, naturally ran forward to find some trace of his quarry. He was a private named Schwartz, since not unknown in his profession and what he found was a bald man in uniform, but with his face so bandaged by a kind of mask made of his own military scarf that nothing but open, dead eyes could be seen, glittering stonily in the moonlight. The bullet had gone through the gag into the jaw. That is why there was a shot hole in the scarf, but only one shot. Naturally, if not correctly, young Schwartz tore off the mysterious silken mask and cast it on the grass and then he saw whom he had slain. We cannot be certain of the next phase, but I incline to believe that there was a fairy tale after all in that little wood, horrible as was its occasion. Whether the young lady named Hedvig had any previous knowledge of the soldier she saved and eventually married, or whether she came accidentally upon the accident 
and their intimacy began that night, we shall probably never know. But we can know, I fancy, that this Hedvig was a heroine, and deserved to marry a man who became something of a hero. She did the bold and wise thing. She persuaded the sentry to go back to his post, in which place there was nothing to connect him with the disaster. He was but one of the most loyal and orderly of fifty such sentries within call. She remained by the body and gave the alarm, and there was nothing to connect her with the disaster either, since she had not got, and could not have, any firearms. Well, said Father Brown, rising cheerfully, I hope they're happy. Where are you going? asked his friend. I'm going to have another look at that portrait of the Chamberlain, the Arnold who betrayed his brethren, answered the priest. I wonder what part—I wonder if a man is less a traitor when he is twice a traitor. And he ruminated long before the portrait of a white-haired man, with black eyebrows and a pink, painted sort of smile, that seemed to contradict the black warning in his eyes. End of recording. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.